due to this misalignment of incentives, the LLMs themselves are not going to do that. Though, you know, if I were to envision an ideal world, it's where you can have each of this LLM has a modality or a skill that it can interact with other LLMs, interact with other tools, et cetera. Uh, now, with seeing lack of incentives, I think that agents will be the way to go, right? You're going to have people who build agents to now interact with these uh, LLMs. Welcome to Humans of AI, where we tell the real stories of those who are building an AI or making use of it in their daily lives. Today's guest is Shashir Patil, currently a fifth-year PhD student at UC Berkeley and inventor of the large language model called Gorilla. Shashir's work broadly covers ML systems, LLMs, EdgeML, and Sky Computing. If you want to catch the latest episodes of the Humans of AI podcast, make sure to subscribe. And check out my free AI newsletter, Chaos Theory, and find me on social at Alex Chowbender. Now, without further ado, here's my talk with Shashir. Hello, everybody. I'm Alex. I'm here joined with Shashir. He is the uh, inventor of a popular large language model called Gorilla, as well as just really much at the forefront of creating tool-based usage or API-based usage with large language models. Sure, he can talk a lot about that, but I think I personally would love to hear just more of Shashir's overall story and and how we got here. So Shashir, if you want to kick us off, what is your origin story? Who are you? How did you get to where you are today? Yeah, thank you, Alex, for having me on the pod. Excited to be here. Uh, so yeah, I'm right now a fifth-year PhD student at UC Berkeley. Uh, so I work in the Sky Lab, and I'm also affiliated with the Berkeley AI Research and the Lab Levens. Uh, where I, I used to do a whole bunch of work on systems for ML which is how do you make uh, inference and training of models, be it large or small, faster on commodity hardware, such as your smartphones, laptops, and user-grade devices. Uh, and of course, right now I'm working on the LLM called Gorilla. But even before this, I did a couple of projects. Uh, one on which, you know, how do you, it's called POET. It stands for Power Optimal Edge Training, which is how do you you know, like do privacy preserving training of machine learning models or fine tuning on like your smartphones, et cetera. So you can think of, oh, you know, why should my data leave my device? And can I have like privacy preserving ML? Uh, and even before that, I did some work on inter-cloud brokers. How do you move data between cloud providers and the likes uh, in my PhD? And in terms of my journey, even in some sense reverse chronologically, uh, even before this, before I did my PhD, I spent a couple of years as a research fellow at Microsoft Research. And this is very similar to the uh, AI residency programs that a lot of people have, where you know after your undergrad, if you're not sure about research or if you're, you know, not sure if, if you want to commit to a PhD or not, you can spend a couple of years uh, at these research labs with the researchers trying to do some research, and it, it's a pretty good experience. Uh, you get good mentoring, you pick up some research skills, which I think come in pretty handy. Yeah, and, and even before that, I finished my undergrad back in Bangalore in India. So that's that's my brief journey. While you were in that in-between stage of like, okay, I graduated from undergrad and now I'm, should I do academia? Should I do some industry? What sort of insights, experiences kind of motivated you to end up going the academic route? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's like, you know, like like every undergrad, once you graduate, you're left with a few options, right? And the classic ones are you go to your usual suspects. Uh, this would be Google, Facebook, uh, Meta. And if you're in some other fields, then there will be others as well. 
uh, or you go into fintech uh, or you go into some of these hot startups. There's always a few around. And the other one was academia, all right? Uh, and in my undergrad, I was almost convinced I would never do a PhD. Uh, and so I was you know, considering some of the other options. And I happened to come across the MSR. There was they, there was a event where they would organize like a bunch of talks and then you would sit through those talks and you would get some experiences. And it, it was good because you got to learn a lot about the state of the art. And I remember that was being super fun uh, and not just fun, but also like, you know, this was quite intellectually stimulating to think about some of the open questions and, you know, just have that as a indulgence of thought. And so I remember speaking to some researchers there and expressing my interest. And I was like, hey, Leon, this looks pretty interesting. Uh, what what if you try this? What if you try that? None of that would make sense, but still, it was pretty fun for me. So I thought, you know, like this sounds like a good idea. So why not just go ahead and spend some time there? And most of these programs are like two years. So it is not, it's like long enough that you get good experiences, but at the same time, it's not too long of a commitment that you'd have to like think multiple times over. Uh, and the people at MSR back then and even now, I think are, pretty smart and it's one of the few labs where you still have the freedom to do like blue sky research mm. and just pursue science for the sake of science which was pretty interesting and at least I enjoyed it so and I, I could get the vibe of that right like when you see when you spend a day or two attending talks and interacting with them then you get an experience and the interview process was also pretty brutal uh very very selective program uh it's called the research fellowship, uh, at least when around the time when I applied, and it was like pretty brutal. And I remember interacting with a lot of smart people. And when I started working there, and I worked with uh, Pratik Jain, Vivek Shishadri, and Harsha Simhadri, and all three of them were great mentors in my right right to start off with. And once you get good mentoring and you enjoy the process, then I think I was like, okay, let's stay for it's a two year program. So after the two years, I was like, let's stick to academia. What was the most difficult part of the process? Like even just like getting into the program, you know, you said it was a very difficult interview, but I'm guessing that it's not just you have a good resume, right? It's probably you have to communicate or share some of the initial research that you've already been doing and fitting it into maybe some agenda that some other researchers are are doing already. Could you, could you talk more about that process? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I think, so what you mentioned is the right way to do that. I don't think I did the right way to do that, mm -hmm. uh, mostly because you know I, I didn't have a whole bunch of exposure uh, or even understanding of what it takes. So I remember going in and you had to give a presentation and it was just like a medley of all the different things that I had done. There was no common you know, stream. And for sure, there was no attempt to align it to what something other people were doing. Uh, but I think what's good is like the researchers there were like, they understood that, you know, you're like 17 years old coming out of your undergrad uh, and then like trying to, not 17, I forget how old I was. <laughs> yeah. I was going to uh, say that that's quite young. Yeah, yeah, I, I just, yeah, I just realized I already had my license, driving license before I finished. So I'm pretty sure I was much older. But yeah, no, like and in that phase, uh, I think like the researchers there, they're pretty look out for you and they uh, and they did a good job of connecting the dots so i came from an experience where i had done a bunch of embedded systems electronics uh and some computer science uh and i definitely hadn't done a whole bunch of ml before uh, either neither research nor engineering but then there was this project called edge ml 
where the goal was that we were trying to see if we can have these latest and greatest ML models that typically take like beefy GPUs to run and try and see if we can like fit them on tiny microcontrollers, right? So these are like single threaded 32 kilobytes of RAM, a uh, few megabytes of flash, like super small, uh, 48 megahertz uh, clock. So the goal was like, can we try to fit um, some of these ML algorithms onto these tiny devices? And I think my background in electronics uh, uh, helped a bit. And yeah, so you're getting, yeah, the interviews were pretty uh, hard, but I guess post that it's also when you come in, uh, it's like very fast paced, uh, which is in undergrad, it's fast paced, but it's also very cyclical, right? Like during your exams in the middle of the semester, end of the semester, it's like pretty cramped. Uh, but the rest of the time, it's, you know, you still have a lot of free time to go pursue and do other things, have fun. But here it was like pretty fast paced. It's like everyone around you is like super smart uh, at at a global level. So that is slightly intimidating, but I think the ecosystem was good enough that you had other people around you uh, who also felt the same way. So it was, uh, there, there was some solace in the fact that everyone was in this together and feeling the same way. There's probably not enough said about the environment that encourages like good research, good collaboration, and just being among really great people, people who maybe more experienced or older who have that sort of insight of like, what does it take to see a blue sky idea go from, you know, just something that you put on the whiteboard to actual, you know, paper at the leading you know, conference and all that. Um, I guess fast forward a bit then, how did that sort of impact or influence your decision to apply to the certain, pro the specific programs that you did for, for your PhD? Yeah, so I think around a year and a half down, when it was, I think, the December of 2018 is when I was uh, trying to apply for grad schools. And I was pretty convinced that I would do, at best, a master's uh, degree. But I remember my advisors uh, talking to me and mentioning that, hey, look, you know, you like doing research. And I was I was enjoying the research that I was doing there. And why not, why not do this into a PhD? And, you know, like, five years may seem like a long-term commitment, but if you think about it, it's only three more uh, given you do a couple of years to do an advanced master's degree anyways. And I was like, yeah, this makes sense. And I think uh, I was like, all right, let's 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 give it a shot. Uh, so I, I, I was very selective and I applied to very few PhD programs. Uh, and once, once interviews are done and once I got in, and then I was like, well, you know, I have an opportunity, let me like take it semester by semester. Uh, it's always like, you know, if you're not, if you're not getting the vibe and if you're not enjoying it, then you could always like leave with the masters, right? And that's also what I asked a lot of my advisors during visit days, which is not recommended. But I was like, hey, if I leave with the masters, would you be angry? And and my advisors were like, no, that's, uh, that's completely fine. And we understand that. So that was, you know, a uh, good, good, a lot, lot of support even during my PhDs. And once you're here and then like, you know, you, you talk to people and you realize that you can continue to do some good research, uh, then it was, then, then it was like clear that, yeah, I enjoy doing the PhD. So that was, that was the process. Yeah. You mentioned that you applied to maybe not a ton of programs so that you probably were like more selective that you knew which one that you wanted to, to go into. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about like why Berkeley, like what, what stood out about Berkeley, Berkeley's program, you know? 
I I've gone to Berkeley as an undergrad, so go Bears and all that. Oh, but, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, we'd, we'd love to hear your your perspective. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, like I said, I didn't apply to very many schools, but at the end, I was deciding between Berkeley, Washington, and MIT, which are all great schools, uh, roughly. And I think I decided pretty early on that I wouldn't. For and also, I, I come from Bangalore in India, which is quite hot, very sunny, and that's the that's the kind of uh, environment that I like, or at least I find very comfortable in. Uh, so that's why a lot, a lot of East Coast schools, uh, I was like, you know, it's not very tempting personally, especially if you're going to spend half a decade over there. Uh, and among among these schools, all three are great schools. But the reason I gravitated towards Berkeley was I felt like Berkeley was more collaborative. That's the vibe that I got, uh, which is something that I enjoyed. And also there was this like culture of building successful open source projects and like culture of not just doing zero to one but taking it one to ten right like when you come across something like a lot of the work i think for a lot of projects that i've been involved with began after the paper was written in the sense you know like you do a bunch of work for the paper but then you're like okay now how do we step back and like how do we make this actually usable how do we validate the idea in the real world that's something that i really enjoyed and i remember when i came to the so every school has visit days when you apply for phd and you get in um, they pay you to come visit the schools and then have a look, talk to your potential advisors, uh, get a feel for the university. And then, and I remember I, when I came to Berkeley, I think the common theme was they were like, oh, it takes a village to raise a PhD. And uh, it, it, I thought it was just euphemism back then, but I think now it kind of makes sense that you know you need the support and the ecosystem to do that. So yeah, and that's that's why... But, but the other schools are great schools as well. Uh, and I think even if I'd gone there, I'd have had as much fun as Berkeley. So that was, that was a thought process. And also I had a few of my seniors who were here. So it was just more familiar as well. You mentioned that you said you're in your fifth year now. Is that right? So that means yeah. you're probably towards the tail end of your experience and, and all that at Berkeley. Is there any, I guess, desire to do a postdoc or any of that stuff afterwards? TBD, but also, uh, Alex, I, so when I, I came in the fall of 2019 and the spring of 2020 is when everyone shut down for COVID. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? So I'm doing my fifth year. Uh, I think I can claim to be fourth or third. Uh, <laughs> I see, yes. Uh, yeah, no, just kidding. But yeah, otherwise, uh, so that's, yeah, you know, it's like similar to undergrad after you do your PhD, there are a uh, few fields that people look at, one of which is obviously going to academia, uh, for which you'd probably go directly or do a postdoc. And the other one is, you know, you'd probably go into some of the research labs or big tech or startups. And my indecisiveness continues to be my good friend. So I'm still uh, TBD, but hopefully I think at least by December or Jan of uh, 2024, I should have an answer. But yeah. the answer is uh, unknown, I know. Well, it seems like you have a lot of things that are already occupying your time and, and headspace, like one of them being this guerrilla you know, effort or project. For the listeners who aren't familiar with it, could you give a quick overview of, of what this is? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So Gorilla is an LLM with the emphasis that this is an LLM that writes and invokes API calls, right? And so unlike most other LLMs that you might have used where you, you know, like chat with them and you have like a natural language sort of interface, Gorilla is similar and different and it's a slightly different ways. Well, it's similar in the sense it's still natural language. You talk to the LLM and you get a response. It's autoregressive. Uh, it's based on the 7 billion parameter models, et cetera. So it's huge in some sense. Not so huge, uh, given the state of the art today. 
But the focus here is that, you know, we want to build an LLM that can actually have effects on the world. So this is not just, oh, I have some information. How do I answer your questions? But this is, can I get something done for you as a user, right? So this is the thought process. And to give some background on how this came about, I think it was November or December in 2022 when LLMs had just started popping out. It was there for a while, but I think ChatGPT came out and that really accelerated a lot of the adoption. And my thought process was that, you know, as some of an early adopter and user, this was great for like something that's more chatty, but it would get slightly annoying if you're trying to get something done, right? So one classical example is, can you activate a Conda environment? It will give you a command. You run that command and then you're like, well, how do I deactivate this environment? And it goes, which environment? And I'm like, well, obviously that the one that I just activated, right? And so it's like this chatty uh, nature of stuff, which was pretty annoying. Uh, so this was one observation. And apparently we had this other observation, which was that LLMs are a powerful tool, but still a tool. And then so a, a tool in the sense it's a computer system. And the way different computer systems interact with each other is through APIs, right? Like we have all as computer scientists know that APIs is the interface of different systems interact with each other. And we were like an LLM individually can only do so much, but an LLM that's connected to multiple other tools can like unleash a whole new set of capabilities and abilities for the LLM, right? So this was the thought process. Uh, and so we were like, okay, we need to now, how do we go ahead and train or like design an LLM that can now invoke APIs well enough was the idea. And we tried some simple texts that didn't work. So then we had to like come up with interesting training strategies, like what we call retrieval of our training or that. And the other bigger question of the day was hallucination. Like a lot of LLMs today make up stuff. And, you know, when you ask people, well, how much does it hallucinate? There's no good answer, right? Like you can't measure it as... So we were like, okay, so can we actually start measuring it? So we adopted some techniques from programming languages called abstract syntax tree matching, where we were able to now put an accurate number and say, you know what? The reason we were able to do this is because we had a domain in mind, a specific domain that enabled us to do that, which was API calls. So you know if it's right or wrong, you know the exhaustive set so you can compare it and stuff like that. Um, but we were like able to put an accurate number and say, hey, you know what? GBD4 hallucinates so much, 3.5 does so much, Corelog hallucinates this much less. Um, and similarly, so this was this was the rough journey around how this product was born. I saw that in addition to the large language model, there's also another contribution that is with this project called uh, API Bench. Could you talk a little bit about what what this is, what uh, addition there? Yeah, totally. So API Bench is our uh, benchmarking suite uh, that we have released for different APIs. So it's like we have about 1,600 different APIs in the API bench that as more and more people start to build these LLMs and, you know, and we've already started to see that a lot of people think about LLMs for APIs. Uh, it, it's important to have a common yardstick to measure. I think like if you have a moving goalpost, then how do you know who does better? How do you know where it stands? So we thought like API bench would be uh, one benchmark that people who are building LLMs, especially for APIs and coding, et cetera, can benchmark against. That was a uh, result of true labor. Uh, a lot of time went into it and we want to make sure that you know it was robust and crisp. Uh, but we also realized that there's only so much like a few of us as individuals in an open source effort can do in like making this dream a reality where if you want to like treat an LLM to use APIs. So we start this other thing called API Zoo, which, was, which is meant to be like this open source platform where people can contribute APIs uh, as individuals. And one benefit that we have is like, you know, you might have heard a lot of stories around, oh, what data did ChatGPT use to train or like, you know, this 
image and text to image generation so like you know what data did stability or journey used to train etc one benefit of apis is that the incentives are fully aligned like if stripe has a set of apis it's in stripe's interest to more and more people use those apis right and there's an incentive to have tutorials documentation etc to make this api more and more usable right like swagger files or kubernetes and stuff like that so when you have an llm to like train and allow them to use APIs, you can use this resources, which are, you know, people are voluntarily willing to contribute uh, because they're like, look, the more people use my APIs, the better it is for me. And the easier you can make the process to integrate these APIs and the easier you can get the APIs to them, it's much more easier. So that's how the effort started. One, we were like, let's have one where people can benchmark and see which one is better, which they can in incorporate. And another one where people can contribute their APIs. So not just us to train Gorilla, but we have like, a bunch of people who are training their own LLMs, they can all just like have this reservoir of APIs data that they can use to train the models. If there's anything I've learned building, like what I'm working on at Microsoft now with this open source project called Semantic Kernel, what we found was that it's great that we can do things on our own. We can put that out there, but it's actually most powerful when you involve the community and you have people who out of their own motivation, right? You're not telling them to do something. They're contributing, they're adding things or breaking your your whatever tool or whatever in ways that you, you can't even imagine. It's just, to me, it's just very incredible to see, right? AI has been this sort of rallying function, if you will, right? Bringing up people from all sorts of different backgrounds to contribute. At least for this, it's, you know, a very technical contribution, but I think more broadly, you know, speaking or considering that these tools are becoming more ubiquitous, right? People can have new ways to contribute, whether it be providing prompts, right? Providing ways to, to jailbreak systems, you know, things like that. I just find it very encouraging, right? And I'm sure you all have been able to, to benefit as well from the, the power of the community. Right, totally. And it's, it's very uh, inspiring, especially when you don't know who the people are. And even initially, when a bunch of people started using Gorilla, all I knew was their Discord handles. I had no idea who they were. And even in open source, right? you mostly know their GitHub handles, and that's about it. But it's a shared, a shared vision that people are working towards, which is actually quite inspiring. What would you say are some of the outstanding research questions that you all are currently still pursuing or have yet to pursue, but maybe would even welcome contributors to help investigate. Yeah, totally. And I think when we started doing this and as more and more people use it, we feel like there are like a few research questions that are pretty open, uh, which is quite exciting. Uh, one is, and this is probably the question of the decade, is fine-tuning versus retrieval. You know, would you rather feed all your data in context or would you rather fine-tune it? Our take on this is is that it's slightly different. Like we tried a bunch of retrievers and retrievers are not that good. Like even if you look at recall at recall at five or recall at 10, uh, which is if you, if I give you 10 chances, can you be correct at least once among those 10 different chances that you're given? You find that most, most models fall flat. By models, I mean like BM25 or like, you know, if you were to use some of the GPT models to get the embeddings and then do a similarity, a classic cosine similarity search, et cetera. In all of these techniques, retrievers actually fall short. Like you're never going to have like an Oracle retriever or a golden retriever, right? Uh, so what we introduce is this concept called retrieval-aware training, which we now know gives a lot of benefits for APIs. But I think it's extremely underexplored for general purpose training, right? Like do we, should we stick to perplexity loss when you're training the base model in the pre-training phase? Is there something more that we can do there? Can you give a bit of a description of what, what, what this, uh, what yeah, this totally. means? 
Yeah, so retrieval aware training, the idea is pretty simple, right? The idea is to say, you know, suppose the user asks a question, uh, the prompt is, I would like to translate from English to French, right? So given this prompt, the way, one way to do this is to do a zero shot uh, retrieval, where you give this prompt, get a response from the LLM. Uh, what people have shown is that retrieval actually helps it. Uh, if you give more context and more information, then you can get a better response out. So this is an example of this would be, the prompt is I would like to translate from English to French, and the retriever tells you, here is a hugging face uh, translation API, Helensky NLP translation API that you could potentially use to do that. So if you give the question and give it some retrieved information, then your LLM can now just like change your input arguments and get you the API to call to give the answer. This is great, right? But what if, this is if you had an Oracle retriever, what if the, you know, the LLM says, oh, you want to translate from English to French, why don't you use this ResNet object detection API, et cetera, or something like that, all right? In this scenario, you're wrong. Uh, so the LLM is actually quite susceptible to wrong retrieved APIs. And this scenario, like we know these two, it's a toy example, so you can differentiate very well, but oftentimes the examples are extremely subtle, right? Like what if I say, oh, I need at least 92% image net accuracy, uh, et cetera, something like that. So then if I give you a slightly different API, it might be hard to reason about. So with retrieval of our training, what you're doing is you're teaching the LLM to identify if the retrieved information is correct or wrong, right? So in the translation case, if I, if the retrieved information says use NLP, Helensky NLP API, then the LLM is supposed to say, all right, this API makes sense. I'm going to use this and give generate the answer. But in the case where I where, where the retriever said, why don't you use Rust 18 backbone for an object vector model, the, the LLM Gorilla LLM is supposed to say, wait, for this task, this looks like a wrong API. So I'm going to discard this retrieved information and just fall back on my memorized information or like, you know, the information that I've been pre-trained on to now return the answer to the user. This is like this one bit information. Can I, can you give me a one bit? Is the retrieved information correct or wrong? Right. Uh, and this is, this is perpetual, right? Unless you have an article retriever, which is never true. You're always going to make errors in retrieving. Uh, so this is the idea. And for APIs, we understand it well. We understand that this gives a lot of benefits and it's clear how to exploit this benefits in improving your generation. But what if for, you know, it's like question answering. If you ask when was this famous celebrity born and I give you an API, sorry, I give you an extracted text, which is the same name, but for different celebrity, like that Michael Jordan can be a professor at Berkeley. Michael Jordan can be the basketball player. So if you ask when was Michael Jordan born, if you give the wrong information as retrieved, then it's going to get it wrong. So how do you overcome that is the idea. So, you know, it's, I feel like that's super unexplored. And I think there's a lot of good research to be happening there. Another area, like I mentioned, is hallucination, right? It's like everyone says hallucination is a problem, but you can't measure how well you fix it if you can't measure the problem itself. Uh, so measuring hallucination is also, I think, a pretty open research question. But with APIs, we use something called abstract syntax tree, which is a topic that's very popularly used in programming languages literature, where given you build a tree of your database upfront, and when, and when an LLM generates something at inference time, you see if what's generated is a proper subtree match of your data set. And if it is, then you know that it's not hallucinated. It might be wrong or it might be right, but at least it's not made up uh, since it's part of your, uh, in some sense, API vocab 
So that's what we could do for APIs. Now, you know, is how how would you extend it or like how would you potentially use that to measure like a generic QA uh, sort of task? Yeah, for natural language, I think it's pretty open. I think that's that's critical because hallucination is a big problem these days. And if you can measure it, then you can now start thinking of techniques to help reduce it. In the similar vein of hallucination, like one recent thing that I saw from OpenAI even was uh, they are using GPT-4 for content moderation, right? And it's effectively, you know, at least in the hallucination case or content moderation case, right? You're asking, you're probing the model to effectively give that judgment, what normally would be a human judgment of like, okay, is this okay, appropriate, inappropriate content versus like, is this fake or real, you know, it's something that you're going to give. And to me, it's like, it's interesting. Yes, the hardest part of all this work is the innate unscalability of, of the task, human moderators or human reviewers, they're not infinite and right, right. you know theoretically right if you have a, a model that you could deploy everywhere and it can query um, itself or you know use you be used for these purposes you can get a lot much more scalable solution but I guess in in this vein I guess in your in a more philosophical level do you feel like this is the way to go um, for for solving these challenges yeah that's a good question. So the way I think of this is, so there are two steps to the, like even the example that you gave, right, for content moderation, there's two steps. Step one is you need someone to specify the policy and it could be watertight or it could be like pretty dilute. Uh, that's okay. But you need a individual to specify the policy, which I think still is the realm of humans, right? Because if you ask the model to specify a policy, it's almost unclear what's going to come out and it may not be what you prefer. And second is that, you know, how well can the model use this policy to now enforce the policy in some sense, where if you're given a prompt and maybe a generation or even without a generation, how well can you enforce the policy given what you just defined? And I think the step two is more tractable in some sense, where if you can specify a very watertight policy and we see some models can today already, like you mentioned with GPT-4 and some of the latest frontier models, you can actually to a reasonable extent enforce policy and what do i mean by the phrase reasonable extent is can it achieve can it achieve human level right like even if i had to put a human in the loop can it do that is the question but i still think that the first part is unclear that's more like regulatory slash social i feel like among societies themselves there's less clarity on what's what's considered ideal what's not considered ideal so that's that's a different debate but i feel like that's the hard part and the second part of just enforcing it i think it's pretty robust and i, I would think models can do that pretty well today yeah so shashir we talked about you know some of the, the latest stuff that you've been working on as well as some of the open research questions how about we transition some of the topics to maybe some more open-ended questions that maybe not directly tied to your research, but just stuff that you might have opinions about. So the first question I have is, there's been a lot of talk recently about the idea of agents, right? And agentic style behavior for AI, you know, having AI do things for you by itself without, you know, you explicitly telling it, this is what you should do. But what do you think about agents overall? Is this a fad because everyone's talking about it right now? <laughs> or is this actually like right direction of where AI should be going? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And my take on this is that agents as a team will exist. And it's already start to see this, right? You're going to have multiple 
different LLMs that exist, and there needs to be someone who can orchestrate amongst all of them. And there's no incentive for each LLM to do it with the other person, right? Like there's no incentive for GPT-4 to like have a modality where it can like talk to Claude and for Claude to talk to GPT-4 or for both of them to talk to Bard as such. So that's not happening. And similarly, there's no incentive for and individually for any of them. Maybe it's slightly less disincentivized, but they could, you know, to talk to like a Bloomberg you know, LLM that's like fine-tuned on financial data or like to Gorilla, just fine-tuned on APIs, etc. Due to this misalignment of incentives, the LLMs themselves are not going to do that. Though, you know, if I were to envision an ideal world, it's where you can have each of this LLM has a modality or a skill that it can interact with other LLMs, interact with other tools, etc. Uh, now, with seeing lack of incentives, I think that agents will be the way to go, where they're going to have people who build agents to now interact with these uh, LLMs. But it's not clear to me if we're going to have like one platform or if we're going to have many of these that people integrate into their workflow. It's almost like if you're doing data science and you're going to use at a university level, you probably might use NumPy, Pandas, uh, Matplotlib, et cetera. But there's, you know, there's, and maybe a collab, but there's individual pieces of these, but you would always tune it or craft it to your benefit, right? So similarly, I what I foresee is that people are going to build their own agents, especially enterprises uh, that's tuned, like, you know, if this API fails, what's, uh, what's the failure mechanism? Are you going to retry it? Probably if it's generation, but what if it's like a Stripe API? You're not going to retry, keep paying someone, right? Then are you going to try to hit a mirror because you're having network traffic or are you going to like try to just discard this and do some follow another branch of decision-making altogether? So it's like, for these decisions making, you might as well use another LLM uh, for all practical purposes, but I feel like agents will stay, at least as an idea. Is there something that's maybe a limiting factor uh, for more widespread adoption of, of agents um, or maybe something technically missing that they need to solve before it can be uh, deployed, especially for enterprise? Yeah, I think the way at least people today use LLMs is through agents. Right. Uh, and I'm being very generous in my definition of what an agent is. But, you know, it's unlikely that, you know, someone today is just going to have one chat completion API or like a hugging face DGI in, you know, just these in standalone to integrate into that workflow. Uh, they're going to have a different workflow, but with a bunch of bells and whistles to like guard what's coming out. Right. And like, to, oh, what if this? completion fails, et cetera. So I feel we already start to see that today. Uh, it may not, you know, it may not be as robust as some of the more beefy agents that we see. But today, anyways, when people use LLMs, they have a separate workflow for this LLM specific task. So I, I feel like it's already there today. Well, it certainly captured a lot of people's imagination and a lot of attention and probably even investment dollars uh, in this space. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we certainly see a lot more innovation and, and changes happening here. While that is a topic that is a very buzzworthy or, or trendy, there's this other side of the house where there are a lot of topics that probably may not get as much attention and maybe are, for whatever reason, just not uh, talked about as much. What do you think or feel is something that you feel is really important, but is maybe not covered, is not talked about among the AI circles or even anyone who's thinking about this space. Okay, so I don't know if this is like not talked about, but I feel it's definitely not talked about enough, is the LLMs not as a standalone tool, but 
an LLM that's going to like reside and augment in other tools, right? Like we have a whole cottage industry of people trying to like build a clone of ChatGPT or something similar, uh, right? But I feel like the best technology, I mean, this is this is mostly philosophy at this point, but the best technology is one where technology is transparent to the user, whatever, right? Uh, so something like that, where it's like, oh, you want to get something done, but how well can you incorporate these LLMs as within your tool, right? And I think the best example is Copilot. So I feel like Copilot is a much better demonstration of the technology because it seamlessly fits into your workflow. You don't have to do anything additionally to have that to work and you see a benefit straight off the bat. So I think that's that's something where people haven't really spent a whole bunch of focus. And there was also like a small incentive why we did the Gorilla CLI where you can like talk to the because when you said APIs and we were like trying to have chat completion APIs we're like well you know what's the use case for this and with the CLI it's clear it's like you talk to your bash all the time or CSH or your favorite shell all the time uh, now can you like enable this APIs to now power up your shell right so that's one example uh, like I said Copilot is probably the best example but some of these, I think Adobe has another with Infill and stuff like that. But these scenarios, I feel, are actually pretty good. And I don't think a whole bunch of people spend a lot of time on that, except like, you know, oh, can I have a chatbot to my sales agent? Can I have, you know, tech support chatbot and stuff like that, which is what I feel like we've been seeing for a while now. Yeah, I guess shout out to what you're doing is I saw one of the demos that you have is using Spotlight, right? With the, the Mac whatever they call it, that that spotlight bar, right? Where you can just say what you want and it will right, give the the command or the API, right? To call, you know, to do exactly exactly that. So. Yeah, exactly. The spotlight, the idea was that, look, the spotlight gives you a bunch of results. Can we do no worse? Like, can we have those results and have an LLM generated answer? Um, and this was born out of like, actually personal need where, you know, one day I opened spotlight and I said, when does my internship start? And it was like, no answer, right? But if I say only intern, then it's able to like pick out the PDF file that has my offer letter, right? Or like if I put the corporation's name, then it can pick out that PDF file that has my offer letter. But to ask the question, when did, when did my internship start to make that mapping and just show me a date, uh, which is something like, you know, LLMs can do that today, but am I going to go and put my offer letter and, you know, a bunch of context on another third-party website? That seems a lot of friction, right? Versus just have that neatly integrated into the spotlight uh, was like one idea that motivated that use case. I've at least seen from the Microsoft side, right? They're looking to push a Windows Copilot and that is having a more AI native experience, you know, so that it could do everything from reason about the screens that you have open, right? And tell you like, oh yeah, like it's like I have, if I have 30 tabs open, it's like, find me that tab that, has my Amazon order, whatever. I'll just yeah. like auto automatically open that without you having to click, 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 click by yourself. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, right? If Apple rolls out something similar in the near term because they have owned this whole vertical integration of their of their product. But yeah, I, I think this co-pilot idea, right? It's very powerful. And the real challenge, it's probably more of this user experience challenge, right? Of how do you seamlessly integrate it to someone's existing workflow that it just becomes that much better, right. that much more enhanced? Yeah, when yeah, when I'm trying to like, at least personally, when I like try to redesign a tool or like build an alternative tool, the goal has always been do no worse. 
if because people use this tool, these are popular for a reason, right? Uh, and if you're gonna like do something, it should strictly be a benefit and not decrease experience in any way. And I feel like that much easier ways to do that than go from a redraw of the entire tool itself. Well, Shashir, one thing that I know several of the listeners are very curious about is a lot of them are in different stages of like figuring out, okay, how do I get involved? How do I get, you know, exposed to AI? How do I incorporate into my own life? Um, How do I study it, right? If I'm a student, if I just started university, like stuff that I thought I was supposed to know, you know, a year ago seems to have now got gotten replaced with this new knowledge and new new ways of doing things. Um, I guess, especially for someone who's still in academia today, right? And, but would, what sort of advice would you give to, let's just say someone who's entering university for the first time or soon to be, and like what, what should they focus on? What should they do if they want to be a part of a increasingly AI-driven future and so that they can participate in it and in some sense, maybe future-proof their own life? Yeah, that's actually a good question. And I think the response I would give is probably also a strategy that I follow is uh, there's so much content that it's very easy to get lost and no one's going to tell you if you're lost because even you won't know if you're lost. So what I've found to be very helpful is to pick people and not projects. Right? Like, oh, if you see someone do something and you like what they're doing, then you know, go talk to them. If they have any open source project, especially, then get involved uh, or, you know, if if they're like teaching a course, then maybe you can sign up for that course if they happen to be a faculty, et cetera. Uh, but yeah, you'll see, you'll see that you naturally gravitate towards a few set of people whose work you admire, whose research you admire, or, you know, who has built products uh, that you wish you built yourself. And I feel like working with them is pretty good because A, you naturally have similar tastes uh, and then you pick up the, the skills that they have you don't and i think that's a, at least i feel like that's a good way to learn and if they also happen to be great mentors and that's a perfect combination right because they're also going to now handhold you and walk you along the journey and you know teach you some of the uh, base scholastic or non-scholastic skills that one might require to go where you want to go so for example if it's ai today i would say there's like a lot of projects today and one good thing is there's a lot of buzz and activity in the open source space, right? So if you're interested in AI, then, you know, look look at the people whom you admire, look at the kind of projects they're working on and get involved in some of these projects. Uh, It it doesn't necessarily have to be that they started it. Like if your friends are doing something that you like, uh, then get involved in those projects and that way you won't get lost. I feel like the biggest uh, failure mode today is getting lost. So if you're not getting lost, then I think that's, that's a good sign. Yeah, I'm sure even in your own story, right, you can point to many different mentors or people that you've been able to learn from, to, to follow, or whoever uh, that has been, you know, very instrumental in bringing you to where you are today. Yeah, I really like this line, like follow the people, not not the projects, because the projects, the that sort of the hype cycle will come and go, right? But the people are, right, the the humans of AI, right, are the people who can help you uh, along that whole journey. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Well, as we wrap up, one of the things that, you know, probably more fun, uh, I don't know if you even have time to, to do any of this stuff is, uh, you know, do you have any sort of like favorite books or movies or shows, any sort of content media 
that's maybe not a research paper, right? But like something that uh, you would recommend to people to be like, oh yeah, this has been this is a very a thoughtful piece of work or thoughtful content uh, or just like fun content. But it's been something that I would recommend to to people. So one thing that I do a lot, uh, which might be a meta recommendation, is to spend time outdoors. I take every opportunity that I can to spend uh, spend time outdoors and. I'll try anything. Uh, and having done that, I've now picked up a few hobbies that I like. Like a, one of the benefits, Alex, you might know being in Berkeley is that you're very close to the marina. So I like going sailing a fair bit that I really enjoy. Uh, so yeah, doing outdoor activities, biking uh, is something that I, it gives you a clarity of thought, uh, I feel, rather than you know being indoors, especially when you do intense physical activities. So I, I enjoy that. In terms of book, I have a habit of reading a lot of newspapers, uh, especially if they also happen to have good journalism. And this is across the world. Uh, I feel like that's super, super useful because, you know, you spend a lot of your time very focused on doing your research. And now with this, you understand what's going on. And it also like gives you perspectives on, you know, and they're like very few times you'll realize that global events also affect your life. And that's very surprising, not something that you would expect. Uh, so yeah, I like reading a lot of current affairs and newspapers in terms of book, probably there's like one book that I remember reading and it left a deep impression on me, at least as a teenager, it's called the autobiography of an economist. Uh, so there was this economist who spent a bunch of time in England to serve during the second world war, then came back, became a professor at MIT. And I think he starts off the book by saying, Something along the lines of in the life of an economist, you can't judge me based on social values. You've got to judge me based on economic values. And then he narrates every every action as a very rationalist consequence of what happened, which I thought was pretty interesting. And it has also stood the test of time. I don't I, I remember the name exactly, but I can probably send you the link. Um, yeah, yeah, please. I mean, it sounds interesting, especially for someone like an economist to... There, I think there's a what this this idea of like, do you take your philosophy or your worldview to their logical ex- extreme? Like, do you view everything, let's say, as a economic relationship? I don't know what to want to call it. Zero sum, whatever those terms are, right? Um, yeah, that, that sort of thing. Do you have that lens of, of how you view the world? Um, and some people do. I, I think that's, it's it's interesting to at least see, see that. If anything, it, people who own their what do you want to call it biases or worldviews of, of that it's refreshing to see that people can admit or like claim it and and name it well Shashir, it's been very lively and, and a great conversation i really appreciate you taking the, the time out i guess for people who want to follow your work more and or follow you even uh where, where can they find you yeah so i, I think uh, i'm on most uh common social media like with Twitter slash X, it's Shishir Patil, my first name, last name, and LinkedIn, or even on GitHub. Uh, I also have a website, first name, last name, uh, .github.io. If you're an academic, then uh, these are like a matter of few hours to set it up. So (laughs) I didn't put in the effort long ago. For the listeners, if you want to follow Shishir, uh, definitely check out those those, uh, platforms. And yeah, well, again, Shishir, thank you so much for this time. And certainly wish you the best, especially as you're navigating the, what should you do after your PhD? 
hopefully maybe we can talk again sometime uh, in the future when when you've made that decision yeah alex thank you so much uh, very thoughtful questions it was uh, it was interesting to think through all of them I appreciate it of course of course well take care right. see you next time hey thanks for listening to humans of ai if you're building something with ai or are perspectives you want to share drop me a note at alex@humansofai.xyz and be sure to subscribe to my newsletter chaos theory until next time this is alex resident chaos coordinator